0: All right. So once again, we are continuing in our series on the book of Mark. And I do want to encourage you, if you missed last week, uh, I don't say this very often, but we we, pre- we preached the paint off the wall. I mean, it was really good last week. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you did not listen to the podcast this past week. Um, this week, we continue in Mark. We're in Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 43. We just read the entirety of the text. And if you were here last year, you remember we did a kind of a series on resurrection. We talked about uh, the raising of people. We actually preached about this story and we talked about it last year about this time of year but the thing I want to caution you with is never come to the Bible never come to the text and think it's got nothing new for me, I know it so well I can never glean something from it I want to remind you this book is active Amen. this book is the only book when you read it, it reads you Think about that. This is the only book like it. This is the only book that can truly change your life. I really do believe that. So I want to encourage you, never ever take it to be, no, well, it's just same old story, same old story. Because what we're seeing here in the text, we're very familiar with it, but Mark, once again, is sandwiching stories. You'll see it's called a Mark sandwich, right? He'll have story A followed by story B followed by story A again. We call it a Mark sandwich. Why? Because he begins a train of thought, And then he has an intersection, a B, the meat of the story, you could say. And then it follows again with the last part of the sandwich, right? And so he is building the context here that Jesus has authority. We've seen this over and over again. We've seen that Jesus has authority over the storm, right? Jesus literally speaks to the waves, peace be still, and the waves are still. That the disciples look at each other and say, who then is this that even the sea obeys him? We see that Jesus has power over nature. We see that Jesus has power over demons, right? How the demon last week, that demon called Legion, comes before him and begs Jesus, literally folds before the king of kings and says, please, 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 don't send us away, but send us to the pigs. Give us permission. Give us permission to go to the pigs. Y'all remember this from last week. So Jesus has authority not, over, not only over the storm, he has authority over demons, right? He has authority over even demons themselves. And we, the big, big takeaway, I want you to understand that even the devil himself has to ask our God for permission. Amen. Think about that, church. Once again, in some reason there's this dualistic view in the church where you think it's God versus the devil. When it's just God. Yeah. It's just God. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is in control. God is fully in control. Not a time where, you know, Jesus has to take the wheel. He's always got the wheel, amen? Now, don't do that in your car. You end up in a ditch, amen? So he has authority over the storm, the nature itself. He has authority over demons. This week, you're going to look at he has authority over the body. He has authority over the body. And then also, a kind of little sweet taste here, he has authority over death itself. How good those words are, right? That Christ is in control, that Christ has authority. Uh, Point number one is a touch of humility, a touch of humility. You see, Jairus here, is, he is a, literally a leader in the synagogue. It's, it's amazing how when from the first point on, when Mark introduces him, he doesn't use his name anymore, right? He continues to say the same phrase and same phrase and same phrase, leader of the synagogue, right? The man who was the leader of the synagogue. He says this over and over and over again. Why? Because he really wants us to get understand that this ruler of the synagogue is just as needy as everyone else. That it doesn't matter your status in life, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, it doesn't matter your income, it doesn't matter your religious reputation, it doesn't matter your religious resume, it doesn't matter if you've been in church your whole life, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized by in the Jordan River itself by Billy Graham holding a dove, amen? None of that stuff matters because at the end of the day, we are all in desperate need of Jesus to do something in our lives. We are all helpless. We all feel the weight that we cannot get through things by ourselves. And if you don't feel that weight, I would just caution you, you haven't lived long enough. Because there has been moments in my life where I felt helpless. I felt like I could not do anything just a couple months ago, we had to take Esther to the ER. Some of y'all remember that. It was a scary experience for us. Our oxygen levels had bottomed out. It reached like, I think, 72 during the night, and we had freaked out, and we had called the nurse's line, and the nurse immediately said, you need to go to the ER now. You need to go to the ER now. And I remember sitting in that ER room, and Esther screaming, crying, and not doing well, not able to breathe, and just helpless. There was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could say. There was no water I could douse her in. There wasn't no oil I could anoint her with. I was just at the mercy of God. At the mercy of God. And it is amazing how the longer you live, truly and honestly, the more humble we should become. The more humble we should become as the people of God, understanding grace has nothing to do with us, and has everything to do with God. That mercy has everything to do with God and nothing to do with us that we would truly be a humble people that would understand that we all need God to work in our lives. This is what Jairus says. Look at the text. It says he comes and he falls down. Look at that. Look at, do you see what he says? It says, Jairus, by name, seeing him, fell at his feet. Fell at his feet. This is almost a position you think about. He just prostrates himself. Just throws himself before the feet of Jesus and begs him. Implores him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. He is, you think about this, I'm going I'm to tell you what, what goes through my head. He is desperate. He is desperate. They've tried everything they can try. They've tried essential oils It didn't work, amen. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they tried doing all the things they could do. They tried the prayer blanket. They did everything they possibly could do to the point where the only thing left to do was to seek out this, this rebel named Jesus who is shaking things up. And he must Pastor. what do you mean rebel named Jesus? You've got to remember, Jesus was going against the status quo. You think about this, this is the only time that if somebody of his statute, somebody in his position in the community, is coming before Jesus in a position of humility. Because all the other religious people, guess what they're thinking? He's, he's disrupting our way of things. But Jairus is a desperate man. He is desperate to the point. He doesn't care what people think about him. He doesn't care how people are going to whisper in the crowd. He doesn't care why, because for him, his daughter's health is more important than his status in the community. His own family's health is more important than his own status in the community. So he is desperate. He is desperate to the point he will look like a fool to get the attention of the Savior. He's got a touch of humility, a touch of. It. You know, Pastor Nick, why do you not say he's got full-blown humility? Because I'll, I'll show something here, contrast you don't think about when you're reading the text, but pay attention here. He comes before Jesus, and what does he say? Come lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, reading that, you're thinking, what's wrong with that statement, Pastor Nick? But really, think again to another story you've heard about Jesus healing people. Think about this. You remember the centurion? He told Jesus what? Just speak. Just speak and it'll be done. Because I know you are a man who has authority like I'm a man who has authority and what you say happens. Let me tell you something about God. Let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to go physically to this person's house. He doesn't physically have to go lay hands on this woman. He doesn't have to do any of this. He can just speak the words and it happens. But why does Jesus Go with the man, because that's what the man asked. Isn't it amazing to think about that? It's what the man asked. And it, read through the text, you'll see this phrase over and over again. Jesus looks at people and says, what can I do for you? It's pretty mind-blowing that he'll say, what can I do for you? And over and over again, they'll say things that Jesus will do, what they're asking him to do, in a sense. But think about this, if this man would have came fully humility, in full humility, if he would have came with full faith and said, if you just speak Jesus. She'll be healed. But remember, he's doing what he's been asked to do. And you might be like, what do you mean by this, Pastor Dick? I'm showing you that God is even sovereign, even in this. Because he knew, He knows what he's going to do. Jesus knows what he's going to do. But this man doesn't know what he's going to do. Our point number two is not only a touch of humility, but we've got a touch of desperation. A touch of desperation. Look at this in the next part. We're going to, in our section B of the sandwich And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Look what Mark tells us. Mark gives us some details here that are pretty powerful. She had suffered much under physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She was bankrupt. She had spent everything she had at the hands of physicians for 12 years. For 12 years, she had had this issue of blood. We don't know what the issue is. Uh, you know, Some historians um, you know, argue and debate about what the exactly issue is, but we do know this. The issue to the sense made her unclean ceremonially, which means she could not go to temple, she could not be around people, that she literally had to be isolated and alienated from her very family and friends and community itself. That all... Matters of respect, church, she might as well have been a leper because she, said she was treated as such. Because her position in the community, people knew she was unclean. People knew that she had lost everything. Think about this. Physically, she had lost physical contact. with She couldn't touch anybody. Because remember what we talked about before, previously talking about the lepers. When you touch someone, not only are you unclean, but you make that person who you've also touched become unclean. And they themselves, back in this time period, in this culture, in this religious movement, when you became unclean, you had to go through the rites of purification and to get yourself back to being clean before you ever, ever were allowed to go back to the temple yourself. Because you can see how this stuff would spread. So that's why they would even touch people. This is why most historical accounts would even say that when lepers and people who were unclean in the community, they would come into town and even say, unclean! Unclean, unclean, they would even ring bells, letting people know, scatter, flee from me, because you cannot come in contact because I will infect you, you could say, and make you unclean. She had suffered much. She had suffered physically, she had suffered emotionally. You think about how isolation is the worst form of punishment you can endure as a human the worst forms of criminal acts in the world, they treat them in solitary confinement. They strap you in a, in a straitjacket and put you in a padded room by yourself because we know the worst enemy of all is not the people around us, but the enemy within us. So she'd been isolated. And you know what I'm talking about. The wolves come at night. When you're by yourself, the thoughts run, right? That isolation eats at us. That's why we don't like being quiet. That's why sol- silence and solitude are nowhere in the Baptist's religion you could say why cuz we're like we don't want to do that but they are disciplines of the Christian life so she had suffered much she in isolation she had so, she was socially an outcast had no friends had no family had no name she had nothing and last but not least she had suffered financially spent all she had with the physicians you think about this woman, you kind of, you, you kind of pretend with me, pretend like a man. I don't know about you, but pretend time's pretty cool. I don't know if you watch Daniel Tiger, but me and Esther really like Daniel Tiger. I watch it, she doesn't. I'll finish the episode, she won't. Uh, but Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, you know, he talks about, let's pretend, and he'll pretend. And So I like to sometimes pretend. You could imagine this woman maybe sitting somewhere, maybe a, a, one of those faith healers is on TV. And maybe the faith healer said, call the number below and send us a check and we'll get you healed and we'll speak it in the name of Yahweh. You right there, yes, you, you, look at the screen, call the number today and we'll get you healed. Those name it and claim it, speak it and say it. Be healed in the name of Jesus, smack your forehead, smack you with a jacket, amen. A bunch of clowns running the circus is what it is in all matters of respect. And can you fathom how many widows have poured their life inheritance into conditions into those people's pockets to try to solve their conditions? And you might be thinking, man, shouldn't they know better, But remember, desperation makes the mind do crazy things. You don't believe me, desperation makes us buy every square inch of toilet paper in a 400-mile radius. Because you know toilet paper goes with COVID-19. Like a sandwich, amen. Goes together. Got to have toilet paper. Because people become desperate. Guess what? They become wild. And you'll do anything. You'll do anything. You don't believe me? Look when snow's coming. People become desperate for milk and the bread. You got to make French toast. You can't make French toast. You don't have eggs, bread, and milk. My mom still this day, if snow is in the tri state area, it could be in Detroit. Hey, snow's coming. Don't get your milk and bread. Because we've become desperate. Guess what? We'll go through extraordinary lengths to make sure we are taken care of. We will. You know what's amazing to me, and I'm going to joke about this, but in all seriousness, uh, there's a lot of looming things right now in our culture, in the financial realm, and there are people out there, and maybe I hope it's not you, I'm not trying to offend you, but there are people like, you know, we've got to be hoarding gold and silver. Because people are getting desperate. People are thinking the world's going to crash, the economy's going to go down, the banks are going to crash. Let me tell you something. If the banks crash, if the market goes down, that means, guess what, everything in our society falls apart. Your gold and silver doesn't matter, bullets matter. Bullets matter. Because when people are desperate, they're like, hey, I've got a bar of gold, do you have water? Do you have food? But guess what, people are Crazy. People think, i got to have all these things, got to have all these things, got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. Because when we become desperate, sometimes we become foolish. But this woman's desperation, she's lost everything. She's physically lost everything. She's emotionally lost everything. She's socially lost everything. She's financially lost everything. But she thinks to herself, look at that, verse number 27, such such a profound verse. She had heard the reports. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Isn't that so good? She had heard the reports about Jesus. She thought, if it's true for them, surely to goodness it could be true for me. She had heard the reports. And she had thought to herself, if I can touch even his garments, just a fringe of his garment. So look what happens. You know the story, you know the text. I'm, I'm going to. Not read the whole entirety of it, but she goes and she she grabs the hem of his garment, and the text tells us that immediately the flow of blood dried up. Immediately doesn't say she went home and had to wait ten days. Didn't say Jesus said, "Hey, take your Z pack." You know what I mean? Didn't say that uh, she went home and had to you know say sixteen different prayers and put some money in a plate and shake it up and rattle it. No, it said immediately instantaneously. In that exact moment, her fingers came in contact with the person of Jesus. Guess what? The very issue of blood ceased. Here's the powerful thing, church. She felt it in her body. Look at that. We skip over it real quickly, but look at the detail here. Immediately the flow stopped. She felt it in her body that she was healed of the disease. And I love verse 30. Verse 30 shows you the character of Christ, I think, in a very profound way. Jesus literally looks at them and says, Somebody's touched me. Somebody's touched me, for I feel that power has gone out of me. And I love this. I would bet my left shoe, this is Peter, amen. I'd bet my left shoe on it, right? Because I love this. It says that his disciples said to him, The crowd's pressing on you, and you're saying, Who touched me? I guess, Who is it, Jesus. Everybody's got a hand on you. Can you imagine being the security detail of this guy? It will be exhausting. Everywhere you go, people try and touch Jesus. Because here's what I think Mark really wants you to understand: there were countless hands touching Jesus, but yet only one person, only one person got touched. There was countless people grabbing a hold of the Savior, but there was only one person who the Savior grabbed a hold of them. There's only one. And this begs the question. Out of the question. You're thinking like I'm thinking the same question why wasn't everyone healed? If there was that much power, Pastor Nick, if there's this much power in this God, man, Jesus, if Jesus is able to, in a moment, heal this woman, why doesn't everyone else get healed? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know God's ways are not our ways. I do know that God does things that don't make sense to me and you. But I do know two things about the Lord. He is good, and He is good to us. Those are two things that will never change. He is good, and He is good to us. If He heals us, He's good. If He doesn't heal us, He's still good. Because as for me and my faith church, those are non-negotiable. Those things do not change. They're immutable. They cannot change it because it's who God is. He is good, and He's good to us. And the third one, I even say, He is not only good, He's not only good to us, He is good for us. He's good for us. In the sense, it's good for me to soak in God's presence and to be reading the Word of God. Because I wish every prayer that I prayed God answered like that. Don't you even wish you could just pray? But guess what? God's not a genie. He's not a lamp you can rub and say three wishes and it just happens. Because if that's your God, then your God is your servant, which makes you God. But you really need to understand that God is completely different than we can fathom. He's in a different category to where we don't understand his ways. But you might be asking, Patrick, why in the world does Jesus ask the question? Does he not know? Look at me. He knows. Why did he ask the question? I'm glad you asked. He asked the question because he's giving this woman a rare moment. He's given the woman a moment to come public for a testimony. Because look, look what happens here. In desperation, she comes stealthily. In desperation, you know, I don't know about you, but I kind of imagine she's got, like, she's sneaking, crawling on the ground, trying to grab the human's garment. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be touched. She doesn't want anybody to know that she's made everybody in that circle unclean. She doesn't want to know that she possibly could have tainted the teacher himself. She comes in fear. She comes in shame. She comes truly as somebody who's on the bottom of the society ladder. So Jesus asks, who touched me, Bob? Because he's fixing to do something that this woman also really needs. She doesn't necessarily need to be healed physically, but she needs to be healed spiritually, emotionally, socially. She needs to be totally healed. You know what I've discovered the older I've gotten? My need, I think I really need, my want, I should say, is not what I need. The thing I want most is really not what I need. Sometimes it might be a side effect, sometimes it might be a symptom, but it's not what I really need. Right? I'll give you a case in point. A uh, case in point I'm talking about. Like, some of you might be like me. Sometimes I think I need more time in a day. Like, I feel like I go to work. I feel like I come home. I feel like it's just a rush. I see my daughter for maybe two hours a day, and I try to get, spend time with her, and then she goes to bed. Like, I feel like literally I need more time. When really, in all truthfulness, I don't need more time. I need to be more disciplined with the time I have. That's what I need. Because we all get the same amount of time. Like, here's the thing, you might be thinking like I'm thinking sometimes, you might think, Lord, if you just gave me another hour, I'd spend more time in the Word. You wouldn't. You would fill it full of meaningless things like I would. But you know what we should do? We should get up an hour early for work. Pastor Nick, that's going to cost me sleep. Now you're catching on. But you're going to tell the Lord, Lord, you're more valuable than my sleep is. Spending time with you is more valuable than an hour of sleep. And you know what's going to happen? Through the natural rhythm of having children, amen, you'll go to bed earlier and wake up at the same time every day and you will not need an alarm clock. My iPhone alarm clock's useless. has no purpose. Why? Because I get up at the same time every day because that's when Esther says it's time to get up. And even if she's not with us, I think I'm going to sleep in. I can't! I try. You, you there with me? You think, well, I'll go to bed at midnight. Still get up at 7. Like that. 6.30 most of the time, amen. You roll over, look up, clock. ah, oh, 6.30, ah. Every day. Some of, y'all, you, some of y'all old times, you're more than I am, like 5.30, 4 o'clock. God bless you, amen. I'm praising God at 7, right? But then all the time you go to bed, you get up at the same time every day. And I'm saying all that to say this. This woman had a need that she thought, I need the issue of blood fixed. But really, she had a bigger need than that. And this is what Jesus addresses. I want to tell you something, something I've also learned. I don't chase rabbits. I, I have wisdom trails, amen? Because <laughs> rabbits, it's not good for you. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm, I'm making wisdom trails. You're going to remember those. That was for free. I heard that this week. I said, I got to steal that. All right, so let's look here. Look what he does here. The woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. That's verse 33 there. Jesus looked around, wondered who it was. This woman comes up. Look at the text. Says, look at Mark. He really paints a picture of her portrait. She came in fear and in trembling. Passionate. why was she afraid? Do you think, do you think she was afraid because like what the people were going to do? I don't think she was afraid of what the people were going to do. I really don't. I I don't think based on the flow of Mark's gospel, that's not what he's after. Think about this. You've got to really, once again, this is where you read the text and you think back to what I've previously read. Context. When Jesus rebukes the waves, the disciples' fear moves from the storm to who? Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. They have fear in a good way thinking, who is this? When the man who's possessed by a demon gets the demon cast out, the people come and see Jesus and they're no longer afraid of the man who had the demon, but who are they afraid of? Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus and they beg him to leave. So tracing Mark's argument, this is really important, I want you to understand, the Bible builds off of each chapter, off of each story. The author has a goal he wants you to get. Mark's goal here is he wants you to see that Jesus is the person we should have a healthy fear of. Because look what the woman does. She is fearful and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You know why I think she was terrified? She was terrified because for the first time in her life she had met someone she could not explain. She was sick before she touched the garment. She was healed right after she touched him. That would scare you. It is scary when things click. It is scary when things happen in a moment. It is scary to the point where you're like, man, I don't know what just happened. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been in that moment where you looked around and you were scared with other people? You're like, what just happened? That's what's going on here. She is terrified in a healthy way of this Jesus, this man. I love how Mark even says, tells him tells the whole truth. I don't know what that means. Maybe it means she shared her whole entire testimony. We're not really for sure, but I do know that it's verse number 34, and then I've got a, I've got a book at church because we've got to get to the rest of this. And he said to her daughter, this is only, this is the first time in the text that Jesus addresses a woman as a daughter. Powerful statement there. I could preach on that all day. But verse, the next couple of segments that are really important, look what he says to her. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Hmm. 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 What does it mean to go in peace? That word in English, peace for us, was a different statement to the jew when they heard these letters these words being spoken you see when jesus says the phrase here he says go in shalom go in shalom remember the pastor "What, what the heck what's the big deal with shalom it means peace it means the same thing you're thinking of it means but the state of peace he is saying here is complete wholeness He's not saying be at peace from your issue of blood. No, he's saying be in peace on a whole. Have whole peace. Because here's the powerful thing. I want you to see this. He doesn't just heal her physically. He has healed her wholly. Wholly with, an, with a W. Not with an H. With a W. Because for the first time in this woman's life, she was getting to go back in society. For the first time in this woman's life, she could go to Synagogue. For the first time in this woman's life, she could have friends again. For the first time in this woman's life, she was healed. For the first time in 12 years, she could have a life. Because here's the truth, church. We should not settle for happiness. Oh, you're going to miss it if you don't pay attention. You should not settle for happiness when God's chief end is your holiness. Holiness. Don't settle for happiness because that's temporary. It's fleeting. You'll you'll grab it and it'll run from your grip like smoke. When at the end of the day, God does not want us to be happy, church. He wants us to be holy. Because He knows when we are holy like He is holy, when we are different like like He is different in a whole other way, when we are walking in the ways of Christ, we will not find happiness. We'll find joy. Joy. And joy is different than happiness. Why? Because happiness is the eternal things around you, how eternal, externally things are going on around you, right? Joy is not what's happened externally, but what's happened internally, saying whatever comes, whatever may happen, I've got Christ! And Christ is enough! Christ is enough! Even if I lose my job, Christ is enough! Even if I lose my family, Christ is enough! Even if I lose my health, Christ is enough. The world can take everything away from me and Christ is enough. You might think, Pastor Rick, that's crazy. That's faith. That is faith, church. Easy for you to say, Pastor Rick, you've never lost. I've lost. But here's the thing. The one thing the world can't take away from me is Christ. They can't take it. They can beat us, imprison us, They can kill us. They can't take Christ. They can't ban him. They can't outlaw him. They can't stop him. They can't take Christ. But I got more. I got more. That's point number two. Point number three. A touch of resurrection. Mm, So good. Let's look at the next part. I would love to say that all stories have like a happy ending and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus did the great things. Jesus heals this woman. A messenger from Jairus's house runs up and says, "Hey, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead." You read those words like I'm reading those words and doesn't rock you and shape you, but put yourself in this man's shoes. He was on his way to his house. The crowd disrupts their journey. This woman gets healed. Jesus does this miracle. And all the while, Jesus, I mean, Jairus' condition, Jairus' problem gets put on the back burner. The servant runs up, says, Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. First thought in my head is this woman cost me my daughter. Put yourself in this man's shoes. You'd be there in the same way. If it had not been for her, if it had not been for these people, my daughter, we would have got there on time. But look what Jesus does. Look how beautiful Jesus frames things. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, once again, that phrase is always there, do not fear, only belief. You want a phrase right on your mirror and you go home tonight. Do not fear. Only believe. Shout it from the rooftops, put it on your Facebook page. Put it at the front of your Bible. remember it all the days of your life. Do not fear, only believe. That is the rhythm which we march. That is the song in which we sing. That is a sermon in which we preach. Even though it looks as dark as midnight, we know that the dawn is coming. We know that things are going to change. We know that God is going to do what He said He would do. Now I don't want you to hear that and think something different than what I mean it to mean. I mean that in all truth and reality, we know God wins. Ultimately, God wins. Jesus goes to his house. Look what happens here. Mark has this distinction here. He takes Peter, James, and John. Those are the three inner circle people, right? Peter, James, and John. They go with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. They go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. Those are his posse. These are his three homies, right? They go with him everywhere. Everywhere Jesus goes, those guys are with him. They go in. There's all these mourners there. Literally back in the day when somebody died, you would pay professional mourners, and they would come back. Oh, they were so great. Oh, they were so good. Some of y'all are probably thinking, write down, I want professional mourners at my funeral. I want people to cry, right? I want that. Like, I want if I die, some, well, not if I die someday, when I, when I die, amen. I want when I die, I want Emily to be distraught. I want her to be so, I really do. You might be thinking, how dare you? I do, I want that. I want, like, I want Esther and all the kids, all the girls, amen, it's going to be girls. Uh, to be just crying in their eyes. Because you want be like, man, I was missed. I was missed. See, see this here. They were making a commotion. Jesus, says, get out. Get on out of here. Get out. Just get out. Shut the door. Get them out of here. Jesus goes in. The child's 12 years old. She's laying there. He goes over to her, speaks to her, just speaks. Takes her by the hand. Speaks to her, takes her by the hand, says, get up. <laughs> Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. Isn't it amazing here that when Jesus does miracles, it isn't halfway done? It doesn't say her body started convulsing. did not say she got up walking like Forrest Gump with braces on, amen? It doesn't say any of those things. No, it says immediately she got up and she walked. And the text here has a more powerful detail that is often overlooked, but very important. At the very end, it says, and they, and he told them, what, give her something to eat. Why in the world, of all the details, Mark would add from the story itself, would he include Jesus as give her something to eat? Now, your head should be scratching. you thinking, thinking, where else has somebody been resurrected and they were eating some food? Oh, it was Jesus. You remember when Jesus went to the upper room with the, with the bros? He was there with them, and he says, do you have any fish? Y'all remember that? Kenneth was there. He can tell you about it. Literally, Jesus went to the upper room. He was there, resurrected, fully resurrected power. He looks at these people and says, give me some fish. I need some fish. Do you have any fish? Do you think Jesus, like, literally been starving for the last three days? He does it because he fully wants to show them, I am physically here with you. So he ate food in front of them to fully show, I am physically here this is not a vision, I'm not a mirage, you're not having daydreams, I'm with you. And he took food and he ate it to prove them I am fully who I was. The girl here is told to eat food so that everybody around them wouldn't believe she's a ghost, it's a spirit, but they would fully see she has physically been resurrected. Here's the good part though, I said all that, I fast forward through that to get to this part, it's going to be so good. The sad part of the story is, you know what happened? The woman with the issue of blood, she's going to die. Jesus healed her, but guess what? No matter that miracle of Jesus, the profound truth is, over a number of years later, this woman would die. She would die and she'd be buried. And sure, people talk about it. People say, Remember that time she had all those issues? She had the issue of blood and Jesus healed her. And they'd be like, Yeah, it was great. It was an awesome miracle. But she's dead. Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old, beautiful little girl. The sad reality is, even though she was resurrected in this moment, even though Jesus got there hours or minutes, we don't know the timeline, but quickly after she had died, guess what? She would die again. The truth is, even though Jairus had mourned her once, there was probably a good chance that he would have to mourn her again if he lived long enough. Because the truth of the reality is, guys, that this was just a taste of the resurrection. This was just a touch of the resurrection. Because the woman with the issue of blood, she would die. The woman here, this young lady here who had died and been resurrected, she would die again. Because the reality of it is, church, this is just a taste of what God was going to do. This was just a shadow of what Christ was fixing to do. Because as for me and you, guess what? We are all going to die. Look at me. No matter how good your body looks today, it is slowly dying. No matter how much you dye your hair, no matter how much you take pills for the arthritis, no matter how much you go to the doctor, no matter how much greens you eat, no matter how much water you drink, no matter how much sleep you're getting, guess what? The grave waits for all of us the rich and the poor, the religious and the lost. The grave waits for everybody. I've never ever seen the grave wait on anybody because the grave awaits all of us. But I'm reminded of the truth of the gospel that Martin Luther said at the burial of his own 14-year-old daughter. I'm reminded of these powerful words as as the hammer nailed in the coffin for his little girl. She was 14 years old. Luther loudly shouted, hammer away, because on doomsday she'll rise again. How true it is, church, that all of us will go to the grave, that all of us will suffer much, that all of us will lose the fight on this earthly realm against our flesh itself. But there is coming a day when we will all be resurrected in the power of Christ. And it won't be a touch of the resurrection. It won't be a taste of the resurrection. But we'll be resurrected in the power of Jesus' name. Why? Because if he walked out of a grave, we walk it too. I want you to understand that so at the end of the day we get wrapped up as a Pastor I want to see miracles I want to be healed I want my little boy to be healed I want my little girl to be healed I want to see my loved ones again let me promise you the greatest need you had is the greatest need Christ did he purchased you with the blood of his own self and so that the power of death hell in the grave can't hold you church at the end of the day ain't no grave gonna keep our body down I promise you, there is not a brother or a sister who has died where cancer had the last word. There's not a brother or a sister who's died where Alzheimer's won. There's not a brother or a sister where their life got snuffed out. You ought to praise God that we all get to go to glory if we've had a relationship with Christ. That every funeral, for goodness sake, should be a sending-off party, but also a celebration. Why? Because He is... The resurrection and the life. The resurrection and the life. I get asked over and over again, Pastor, what if God doesn't come through? What if He doesn't do what I want Him to do? Because there's a good possibility He won't. But you know what He did say? (laughs) Behold. I'm making all things new. There is coming a day. Well, He will wipe every tear away from our eye, and He will make everything right. He will make everything right. And there is coming a day. Guess what? There won't be. You you ever fathom this? There's no funeral homes in heaven. Praise be to God. No nursing homes. No hospitals. I know a lot of people are going to be out of a job, amen. You're going to go pull weeds or something, praise God. Because there won't be no need. Because death itself has lost. Some of y'all ain't got it yet. You better find it in a couple weeks we got Easter coming, amen. You better find it. You lost it, you better find it. But this is why. This is the truth we hold on to. This is the reason why, when we lose everything, we can still sing "Amazing Grace." How sweet the sound! Why? Because we fully get it, church. This is why, when everybody else is thinking, "How are you holding together?" you look at them and say, "Because the one who holds all things together is holding me together." Because you understand the three powerful points I'll say over and over again to you, as long as I'm your pastor, is the Lord is good. Nothing could change that. Nothing could change that. It's not up for debate. It's not up for a vote. Nothing changes the goodness of God. Not only is the Lord good, He's good to me and to you. He's good to us. You know, Paul says grace upon grace He has lavished on you. Because He's been good to you, He's been good to me far better than I deserve. Pastor that's easy for you to say. You've got everything you ever wanted. I have not got everything you've ever wanted. There, there are countless things I wish I had, but the Lord held back. Why? Because He's good. It's because He's good. Not only is the Lord good, not only is He good to me and to you, but He is good for us. Do you ever think, and this is going to get in a whole, this is a, this is a wisdom trail, but it's a God's honest truth. Do you ever think the Lord holds back some of those things because He wants us to understand that the blessing is not the true biggest thing. It's the blessor that's more important than the blessing. So he withholds it to see how bad you want him more than you want the thing he's going to give you. Because I'll be honest with you, those seasons in my life where I was the closest to God, Hunter, those seasons in my life where I was desperate, those seasons in my life where I cried out to God and I wept, those seasons in my life were not the moments when God was giving and giving and giving. No, it was the moment where I felt like the world was taking and taking and taking. And the only thing I had to cling to was the cross. The only thing I had to cling to was the anchor that held. You don't know it's going to hold until you've lost everything else. And you hang on to it through the weariness of the night, saying, Christ, it's only you. I don't want nothing else, Lord. It's only you. I just want you. If you don't give it, Lord, I still praise you. I just want you. Because he is the good stuff, church. It's not what he gives that makes him good. It's who he is. That makes them good. Some of you are thinking, I can't wait to get to heaven and see those streets of gold. They won't compare. I can't wait to get to heaven and see the mansions. They won't be that big. I can't wait to get to heaven and see my loved ones. You won't care. I can't wait to get to heaven and say, take me to the throne. Because he's the only reason you got there. No, nothing else. Nobody else can get credit for that except for the King of glory. I see some of you looking at me and thinking, Pastor, make you crazy. I am crazy. I'm crazy about a guy named Jesus.